Hello and welcome to our podcast with me, Lyndon Kemcaran, and this week's guest, Professor Phil Stevenson. Today we're talking about the relationship between bees and caffeine. Yes, you heard that right. It turns out that bees are just as affected by caffeine as us humans. Now, Phil Stevenson is Professor of Plant Chemistry at the Natural Resources Institute here at the University of Greenwich, where he's head of the Chemical Ecology Research Group. Phil also holds a dual position as a senior research leader of biological chemistry and in vitro research at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. Phil, it's great to have you on the line. How's your day going? Oh, fine, thanks. Yes, this is a very exciting opportunity to speak to you, Lyndon, about uh, our, our work on caffeine and bees. So I introduced you as a bee expert and a bee and a caffeine expert. Now, I've had my morning cup of coffee this morning and I can feel the effects almost straight away. I must be quite caffeine sensitive. You know, my heart rate increases slightly. I feel more alert. Now, you've done some studies that say that bees are affected in exa- almost exactly the same way as humans. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, it's not quite um, that that story, but it's similar. Um, we essentially were looking for drugs in plants as a little bit of fun. Former PhD student of mine, Professor Geraldine Wright, now Professor of uh, Zoology at the University of Oxford, uh, we once had a meeting over a cup of coffee, interestingly, uh, and we were wondering whether or not if plants could drug humans could plants drug bees into being better pollinators? Uh, We were aware of some work that had shown the presence of certain chemicals in the nectar of flowers, and so we thought we'd pursue this. And I looked at uh, some species of plants, including coffee uh, and citrus, and we found caffeine in the nectar of these plants. Now, uh, it may not come as a surprise to some of the listeners that we found caffeine in the nectar, because obviously coffee plants produce Uh, caffeine. But actually, the received wisdom and all the evidence is that caffeine is a defense chemical. It protects coffee beans from insect herbivores. It protects the young sweet leaves of tea from insect herbivores. It protects plants from insects. So why would it be producing this caffeine in the nectar, which is the gift for pollinators? And most of these pollinators being other insects, of course. So we pursued this line of work and found that actually it occurred at concentrations that were too low for the bees to taste. So it wouldn't deter them from feeding. Might it have some other effect on the bees in a way that it has on humans? So we undertook some research to look at how it affected the behaviour of the bees. Okay, so Phil, that's that's fascinating but in in what you just said you mentioned that citrus fruits contain caffeine as well i didn't know that yeah it seems that caffeine has evolved in lots of different plant species uh, because it's a fairly simple um, chemical and it has a an ecological function that might be useful to a lot of different plants and so actually we're finding it popping up in lots of different plant groups lots of different families of plants uh, very recently even in uh, the legumes. Uh, That's the pea family. So it seems to be popping up in um, the citrus family, in the coffee family. We also know it occurs in the ivy family. And in fact, in South America, there's a drink made from the leaves of Ilex paraguariensis, uh, which is essentially a member of the ivy uh, uh, group, which they use to make mate, which is a similar uh, tea. Uh, and so caffeine pops up in lots of different plant groups. And so we're increasingly thinking that it has this or this, this group of useful functions uh, for enabling uh, its interactions with insects, either to bring them in and make them do a job for them or to protect plant parts. 
because it's a bitter or toxic chemical at high concentrations. So you were saying, let me just take you back to what you said right at the beginning. So you said normally the caffeine is used as a defence mechanism by the plants to repel uh, insects from landing on them. But the, the caffeine was somehow not uh, being picked up by the bees. So they were, they were feeding on, on the, the flowers that contained the caffeine unwittingly. Is that what you meant? So at, at high concentrations, caffeine is bitter tasting, quite like, like a lot of alkaloids. It's very bitter uh, and bees and lots of other insects can taste it and it puts them off their food. At very high concentrations, it's actually toxic. And so that's why you get such high concentrations of it in coffee beans. But in the nectar, it's a very low concentration, and we've tested this with bees, and they literally can't detect it. They don't know it's there. But we wondered whether it had some other uh, unknown effect on the bees, an effect on the bees that perhaps even the bees didn't realise. So that's, I'm guessing that is the effect on the bees' memory. Is that right? Tell us a bit about that. Okay, so one of the things that's a really important part of uh, being a bee is to remember where good food is. Actually, it makes the job of foraging for food um, much easier and much more efficient. And if you imagine an individual bee might visit thousands of flowers in a day, if they can shave off 5% of the time it takes to gather that food, then they're doing a much better job. So anything that nature can do to make this process more effective will help and will also end up being the adaptive benefit or uh, progress that that species makes. So memory is a very important part of foraging. A bee can uh, remember where a good food source is, but they only remember where it was because of certain traits in those plants, either a very showy flower, so it's a big yellow flower, or it's a shape in the landscape that it remembers, or it's a smell. And that's why plants smell. And that's why individual flowers smell differently to each other, because they want the pollinators to remember and recognise them. So memory is a very important part of the success of pollinating insects. And that's fascinating, isn't it? That reminds me of when I do my weekly shop. And isn't it interesting, if you know the layout of your supermarket, you can get your shop done in a fraction of the time than if you're suddenly landed in a supermarket where you don't know where the bread is located, you've got to search for the rice and the milk. Is that the kind of thing that the bees do? They, they are more efficient by using their memory to get around the flowers more quickly. Uh, yeah, that's a very nice way to put it, actually. I mean, typically they would be foraging in the same landscape day in, day out, and they would become familiar. Uh, and that, and the, their ability to remember where foods, food, good food sources are uh, enables them to forage much more efficiently and provide much more effectively for the hive. So although human and honeybee brains are obviously very different inside if nothing else what does what does this research that you've done uh, tell us about the way humans react to caffeine are there any any nuggets of information that have been revealed well there are data around now there's published reports that show that caffeine does enhance uh, memory in humans and other mammals too uh, so there are similarities in the effects uh, but the way we were able to show this in bees was using a an experiment it's a fairly old experiment called conditioned learning most people will be familiar with the story of pavlov's dog uh, pavlov was a russian scientist and he rang a bell every time he fed his dogs uh, and when he fed his dogs they salivated in anticipation of the food and he would train them in this way and then eventually he would just ring the bell and the dogs would salivate even if there wasn't any food there 
So they were obviously remembering this cue. We have a similar experiment with bees where we can provide them with a food reward of sugar, liquid sugar, uh, and at the same time, blow a plume of odour across their antennae. Uh, and so they're associating that smell with good food. And when they get that smell and they get that food, they stick their proboscis out or their tongue out. And you can train them using this process until eventually they make this association. Then all you need to do is blow odour across their antennae, that same odour, and they stick their tongue out. And you therefore know they've remembered it. Actually, this was used originally to show how chemicals like pesticides at sublethal effects might um, have a negative impact on the bee's ability to remember things. But actually, with caffeine, we showed that bees were able to remember things for much longer. And the effect of caffeine was they were able to form much stronger memories over much longer periods of time. So when they went out foraging the next day, they were much more likely to remember a cue associated with a food. And of course, this gives the plant an amazing advantage, because if those cues, those smells of that flower are remembered above all the others, then that animal is likely to go back to that plant and therefore likely to pollinate that plant more effectively. So are you saying, let me see if I've understood this correctly, are you saying that in the same way that we use pesticides to repel certain insects from certain areas, you know, certain fields of crops, you are now experimenting on using other odours to attract pollinators? Kind of. So one of the things that happens with pesticides is they, um, obviously pesticides are, are, are insect killers, and at high concentrations they also kill non-target insects like bees and uh, natural enemies of pests, and we don't want that. But um, some pesticides are used or they exist at very low concentrations, and they're not deadly, but they still have these negative effects on bees. And that's where this um, this experiment has been used in the past. But what we've done is we've used it to show that caffeine actually enhances their ability to forage. And uh, what we're now thinking about is trying to use this knowledge to improve the pollination efficiency of commercial bees in agriculture. So at NRI, we've had a research program underway where we've been training bees to recognize strawberry flowers uh, with a caffeine-treated in-hive uh, feeder that's laced with the smell of strawberries. So when they're feeding in the hive, they're also associating that with the smell of strawberries. So when they then go out into the fields to pollinate, they want to go straight to those strawberry flowers. At least that's the idea. It may surprise some of the listeners, but actually uh, bumblebees are now used commercially in in pollination of uh, soft fruits because they're very hairy. They can work at much lower temperatures, so they can start much earlier in the year. Uh, and uh, they're actually quite easy to, to produce commercially. So what we're trying to do is to train these uh, bees to be more active and to, uh, to get that kind of caffeine buzz, if you like. And then when they do go out foraging, to be more focused on the strawberry flowers than anything else in the landscape. You mentioned bumblebees are very hairy. Why does that matter? Well, hairy bumblebees carry lots more pollen on their bodies. And by carrying lots more pollen, they're much more likely to transfer that pollen from one flower to another flower and then help in plant reproduction and therefore the process of producing the fruit. So they look cute and fluffy, but that fluffiness is actually incredibly useful uh, in their role as pollinators. Yeah, it's also very useful in their role of staying warm when it's cold. 
And actually, that's uh, really one of the reasons why uh, bees are so successful in temperate zones. Uh, actually, the diversity of bees is much greater in temperate zones because that's where they're more successful. Being hairy means they're also a, they're basically able to stay warmer. Fascinating. I never knew that either. Um, so caffeine, um, does it affect the bees' judgment at all? I mean, when, when, you've, when you've actually deliberately you know, fed the bees caffeine in your lab, what do you notice about the change in their behaviour? So this is a very good question and something we don't yet know about and something a lot of people might be sensitive about. They don't want us to mess with nature. I should probably make it very clear what we're doing isn't messing with nature. We're using what are already commercial bees that farmers buy in by the box stick in their uh, polytunnels with their soft roots and they're solely used for the purpose of pollinating the strawberries or the raspberries. So just to make sure that people don't think that we're messing with uh, the natural populations of bees, we're not. Absolutely. Or, or, being, cruel, or being cruel in any way to, to insects because, of course, some people listening to this might think, oh, my God, bees are bad, but that doesn't sound very nice. Hopefully you can put listeners' minds at rest. Yeah, so these bees are already being uh, are being used for this purpose. They've been grown by commercial companies as uh, colonies of bees that farmers then buy to then put in their polytunnels for the single purpose of pollinating uh, the strawberries. And in fact, they they um, by by law they should be destroyed at the end of the season anyway. So they shouldn't then um, go out into nature because they might carry diseases. Um, but the question you asked was about whether there are any secondary effects. And actually, this is something we don't yet really know about and something that we're very interested in. And, and we are hoping to do some research in the coming years to find out what uh, other effects might be going on, whether it means that they are uh, more effective at pollinating. We've got some evidence that their behavior at the flower is uh, more efficient. Uh, they take less time to choose a flower, so they become more efficient at finding one. They may be more effective at gathering pollen. Uh, and so we, we're sort of starting to find that even their behaviors at the flower might be better. But there is one interesting outstanding question that often people ask, especially when I try and uh, relate this to um, the plants drugging bees. Uh, and I've just uh, recently won a, a grant from the Leverhulme Trust with uh, my former PhD student mentioned earlier, uh, Professor Wright at Oxford, to study this actually. And it's a really interesting question because it might help us understand more about addiction in humans too. Yeah, of course, because I know that if I try and uh, not drink as much caffeine as I normally do, I get a banging headache. Is that something that bees would get in the same way? Yeah, bees and headaches. Well, that's a really interesting question. How would we how we would figure out whether a bee's got a headache? I have no idea. But certainly the question yeah, the question of whether bees become addicted is a is a just an interesting um one in terms of uh, pharmacology. Uh, but one of the things that might be important to understand is whether bees become used to the effects. So, uh initially they have enhanced memory when they interact with caffeine. Um, but we don't know whether this they become used to it. We've got some biological experiments in the laboratory that suggest that they do actually become used to the effects quite rapidly. But some of the early decision making is um, highly influenced by caffeine. But then over a short period of time, uh, they become used to those effects. So it might be that when we use this in the field, it needs to be an occasional uh, ex exposure to caffeine rather than a continuous exposure. But the, But this question of whether bees do become addicted is a really interesting one in terms of making that kind of parallel between bees and humans. You said at the beginning that um, bee, bees' brains are not the same as humans, but actually there are elements to them that 
are related and they and they can perhaps be a model for understanding addiction in ways that we maybe didn't really appreciate uh, before so one of the things that we do know is that um for instance if you expose uh bees to uh, a nicotine laced solution of sugar after 3 days of exposure they prefer nicotine laced sugar than they do normal sugar and that is again below taste thresholds uh and so we already have some evidence that bees appear to want to feed off nicotine laced um food and so what we want to do is to try and find out what lengths they'll go to to get that nicotine so we can set up interesting experiments with um difficult to access food sources against easier to access food sources if one of them is laced with nicotine would they still prefer to go to the one that's difficult to get to than the one that's easy to get to like any drug you need to up it don't you for it to keep on being effective and of course you like you say you don't want the bees to become so addicted that they become incapable of functioning without it yeah so i think it's important to, for me to stress that um I, I may sound like a mad scientist who's doing terrible things with bees uh, but we are ultimately interested in understanding how bees interact with nature so a lot of the work we do is on commercial bees honey bees uh, or commercial bumblebees but we have a lot of work ongoing with uh, wild species it may surprise some of the listeners to learn that there's a huge diversity of species in the uk alone we have something like 275 species globally there are 20,000 species of bees they all have different requirements in terms of their feed uh, or forage uh, and some of the rarer species have quite um, unique you well they have unique relationships with certain species of plants we need to be mindful of this and i guess if there's one strong message about what we need to do it's about diversity what can we as you know non-sciencey individuals do practically to increase the variety of bee species to come into our gardens and and do what they do best you know pollinate plant diversity in nature is really the key a diversity in flowering phenology by that i mean we need flowers that are around in february march april right through to october so if people want to make sure their garden is friendly for pollinators then make sure you got something flowering at all times of the year. If people are less tidy with their gardens, then they can provide not just weedy species for pollinators, but also areas where pollinators might be able to nest. So untidy gardens are good for bees too. There's a whole host of uh, useful information online as more and more people become aware of the importance of a diversity of bee species. And don't mow your lawn too much. If you've got dandelions growing in your lawn that's great for bees if you've got clovers growing in your lawn that's great for bees if you've got weeds coming up in your uh in your borders that's also great for bees maybe leave them behind the shed if you don't want them to be in the front um showy part of your garden but just make sure you've got a diversity of species and be careful when uh buying uh, different cultivars because some cultivars are so showy uh there's so many petals especially for instance in roses there's nowhere for insects to get to the the nectar so uh open pollinated species are also good professor phil stevenson thank you so much for joining us here today and i think we can take away a couple of really interesting points from what we've been talking about uh, lazy is good you don't have to be a fantastic gardener to encourage lots of pollinators into your garden uh 
variety is the spice of life. You know, keep the diversity going when you plant your flowers and let weeds come through when they can. And a caffeinated bee is a busier bee. And we, we will come back to this subject in the future when you've had a chance to do more research and find out if you've discovered any more upsides or downsides to your fascinating experiments. But Professor Phil Stevenson, thank you. Thank you.